This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Adam Winkler, a law professor at UCLA and the nation's foremost constitutional scholar on the Second Amendment. We will be talking about the highly controversial gun control legislation that's been introduced in the southern state of Virginia, perhaps a test case for the rest of the U.S. I'll also speak with Phil Hochevar, a Virginia resident and gun owner, about what the legislation means to him. Finally, my thoughts as a Virginia gun owner myself. And now, the Nexus. In the coming weeks, the Commonwealth of Virginia, of which I'm a resident, will consider sweeping gun control legislation that could be historic should these bills become law. They include mandatory background checks for any transfer of firearms, including private sales, the purchase of only one handgun per month, and the red flag law, which means law enforcement could take firearms away from someone deemed a substantial risk. The most controversial law, which as of this podcast was withdrawn from the Virginia Senate, concerned the possession, sale, and transfer of any firearm magazine with more than 10 rounds of ammunition. Now, a watered-down version remains in the House of Delegates, which would allow Virginians to keep their assault rifles if they register ownership with the Virginia State Police. If they don't register their so-called assault weapons, they would be charged with a felony. Adam Winkler is a specialist in American constitutional law, the Supreme Court, and gun policy. He is also the author of Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, 2011, and his scholarship has been cited in landmark Supreme Court cases on the First and Second Amendments. Winkler is a professor of law at UCLA and is one of the 20 most cited law professors in judicial opinions today. I'd be remiss not to mention that he is also the son of filmmaker Erwin Winkler, who won the Best Picture Academy Award for Rocky and also produced Raging Bull and Goodfellas. Adam Winkler, welcome to the Nexus. Thanks so much for having me. The situation here in Virginia is an extraordinary one and fast moving. The governor and newly Democratic legislature are expending a lot of political capital on the firearms issue right away. Are any or all of the proposed gun control laws going to pass constitutional muster? Yes, I don't think that the, that the proposals that uh, are at issue in Virginia are likely to run afoul of the Constitution. The Supreme Court has said that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to have handguns in the home for personal protection, but hasn't really expanded on the Second Amendment much more than that. And the lower courts have generally upheld the kinds of restrictions that Virginia is considering, including universal background checks, uh, restrictions on the number of guns that you can buy in a month. Um, and things like that, and red flag laws. Um, the most controversial of Virginia's proposed gun reforms, a ban on military-style assault rifles, has been dropped by the legislative committee and is apparently not going to go for a vote. I think that was the provision that was most likely to run afoul of the Constitution. Hmm. I mean, so I think for our listeners, they wonder if states have the right in general to pass legislation like this because there seems to be a sentiment that many of these proposed laws are already on the books, that we already have um, 
the NICS system, the uh, the registry of um, of people who have um, legal issues and things of that nature. Why would the states jump into this? Well, uh, Virginia wants to close one of the major loopholes in federal gun laws. So we do have the NICS background check system that's under federal law, and it requires any federally licensed gun dealer to conduct a background check anytime they sell a gun. However, federal law does not require you to have a license in order to sell a gun. So you can be someone who doesn't have a license and still sell your guns. And if you do, you don't have to conduct a background check. So it's estimated that about somewhere about between 20, maybe 30% of lawful gun sales occur without a background check. And uh, several states have closed that loophole. I, I live in California where I'm a professor at UCLA. California, for instance, has closed that loophole, requires every gun transaction, every gun purchase to go through a background check. And so Virginia is trying to do what California has done, which is to close that loophole in federal law. Has it been working in California and other states? Well, it does work. I mean, we know that if you require someone to go get a background check when they purchase a gun, if they have a felony conviction or they have uh, uh, otherwise they're prohibited from purchasing firearms, uh, it makes it much more difficult for them to do so. Uh, of course, the most determined criminals can still get their hands on guns by buying guns in the black market. Um, but universal background checks shut down the easiest way for uh, people to get guns, which is to find someone who's willing to sell them a gun uh, without doing a background check. How many other states besides California have this, that what you just described situation going on? It's only a handful of states. The truth of the matter is in the United States, we are not evenly divided on the question of gun policy. There's about 40 states that are very gun friendly, um, where the gun restrictions are few and far between, um, and about 10 states where the gun laws are more restrictive, places like California, Hawaii, uh, Oregon, uh, a couple of New York, Massachusetts, a couple of states like that. And so Virginia, we see, is in the midst of transformation from becoming a state that was known to be a real blue state, um, sorry, a, a real red state, and then it became a purple state, and now is becoming more of a blue state. Um, and that, that we can see that transition by how the state has really uh, responded to gun reform efforts. And these new gun reform efforts in Virginia really reflect uh, the changing character of the Virginia electorate. Well, that's what's fascinating to me, especially as a Virginia resident who've li lived here for the better part of a decade, and I have seen that transformation. Um, but I, and the states that you just mentioned really would all be considered, quote, blue states, I would say. Um, is Virginia a test case for the rest of the country in terms of this kind of extensive gun control taking shape? Well, it is in some ways. And I think that's in part why the gun rights protesters ha are organizing with such um, uh, vociferousness and power and strength, because they view this as a, a turning point. On the one hand, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be such a crucible for American gun policy. Virginia's uh, proposals are not the most radical proposals we've seen on issues like gun reform. Um, and really, Virginia is just catching up with uh, states like California that have had things like universal background checks for quite some time. 
Um, uh, and, but um, uh, nonetheless, because Virginia is transforming and because it is the home of the NRA, the headquarters of the NRA, gun rights activists have really taken this to be a moment, a turning point where they have to take a stand against uh, gun regulation. Um, and so we're seeing so much organization precisely because there are some people who believe this really is an important turning point uh, for American gun policy. Now, the NRA has had unprecedented power over the last few decades, especially in the last 15 years, I would say. Are they going to prevail possibly in this situation or is, are the news reports we hear that they are hobbled in a lot of sense in terms of finances and membership really taking root and they won't be as effective? Well, I think the NRA is without doubt hobbled. The NRA has been going through a very nasty internal reorganization where they have split from their public relations firm that was responsible for virtually all of the NRA's messaging over the last 30 years. Um, the organization that that PR firm is really responsible for so much of the NRA's success in becoming the political powerhouse that it is. Uh, the NRA has fired its president, its chief lobbyist, uh, its lawyers for many years, um, and many people from the board have been ousted. So uh, we are going through, uh, the NRA is definitely hobbled in some ways, but I think the Virginia um, incident and the Virginia controversy kind of highlights why the NRA's internal organizational struggles do not necessarily translate into um, a weak gun rights movement. There are so many gun rights supporters out there that feel very vehemently about their weapons, very passionately about these issues, and they're going to organize and they're going to vote um, regardless of what the NRA does. And um, while the NRA is certainly a political powerhouse, we'd be making a mistake if we think that the NRA is really responsible for um, all the passion that is on the gun rights side. There's just a lot of voters out there who really feel that this is a big issue for them. I mean, back to what some of the provisions of this legislation is, uh, is it really possible that the state could make not registering a particular firearm a felony? Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that states can require you to register firearms. Um, several states require um, at least some partial registration. Um, and we know that the framers of the Constitution, the, the men... Uh, and women who wrote the Second Amendment, um, they had gun registration back in their day. Um, uh, if you were a member of the militia, you had to show up at mandatory musters where you and your guns would be inspected and put on public rolls. Um, and as the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals held in a case a few years ago, uh, registration has a long history and tradition uh, in American law, even if very few states today uh, require registration. Hmm. And what about the the sense from a lot of gun rights activists who say uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia may actually try to take people's guns away? Is is can they do that? And is there any validity to those sentiments that are out there? Um, well, I think that sentiment largely arose in response to a proposal that was on the table to ban the possession of military-style rifles, so-called assault weapons. Um, my understanding is that proposal has been tabled. It didn't make it out of committee. It's not going to be voted on by the legislature and has no prospects of becoming law in Virginia at this point. 
Um, were that ban on possession adopted, um, then yes, the government could uh, confiscate people's weapons. Um, if the if you own something that is deemed to be contraband, that is to say illegal, um, then the government um, can require you to throw it away or to turn it in. Um, it's uh, but that's mostly a theoretical issue. Not only is this law not going to be passed in Virginia, but even if it were passed, uh, it's incredibly hard to get those weapons away from people. In California, we've banned the possession of high capacity magazines, for instance. But government's not making any effort to go collect the high capacity magazines. There's just too many of them out there. Government doesn't really know exactly where they are anyway. Uh, and so uh, it's not really a very practical policy to go around confiscating people's weapons or confiscating anything else that people have. Do you think, I'm not sure how much has been said on this in the last um, week or so, but is the reason that legislation was withdrawn because of some of the things you said, or might there have been other factors that, that went into it? Well, that might be the reasons. I can't really speculate for what the reasons were behind the people in, on the on the, in the legislative committees that voted against it. Voted against it. I know that there were concerns that that particular proposal was one that was likely to stimulate the most uh, vigorous uh, opposition. Um, people really, really love these military-style rifles, and people really don't want to give them up. Um, and add to that the fact that these military-style rifles are generally not. Um, involved in criminal activity. Um, you know, the number of people per year who are killed uh, on, uh, with rifles is a very, very small number, um, uh, you know, a small fraction of the gun deaths uh, every year. So uh, there's not a lot of public policy gain to be had by banning these weapons. And there is a lot of political opposition that will be stimulated by such bans. So I think um, maybe lawmakers were uh, thinking about the balance of um, the politics in this situation and realized that maybe it was not the best provision to put forward. I've been hearing more and more about red flag laws, but honestly don't know where they came from and if they are even legal. What, what can you tell me about them? So a red flag law is a law that provides for the temporary confiscation of someone's weapons when they are going through some kind of emotional crisis that renders them uh, a danger to themselves or to others. Um, and what they generally do is they provide that um, uh, family members or law enforcement can go to a court and say, hey, we know that this particular person is going through a crisis. We know that they have firearms. We think that for the safety of them and their families and uh, people around them, we should temporarily confiscate those guns, say, for a month's time. Um, and you can go in uh, to court and they can get the judge if they persuade the judge that this person really is someone who is uh, troubled and is a danger. Um, the judge can order that those guns be temporarily confiscated. Um, if uh, the family members or law enforcement believe that the person should be uh, should lose their firearms for a longer period of time, more than, say, a month. Um, then they can go to court and uh, through a hearing in which the defendant would be able to participate, um, they can try to prove to the judge that this person really is a danger to themselves or to others uh, and shouldn't have firearms. These gun, these laws are not used very, very oftenly, very, very often uh, or very, very frequently, um, but they do provide promise for a family that identifies 
someone who is really struggling and is someone who, who might be a danger to themselves or, or to others. And I guess this is a situation where if these laws pass and there's a groundswell of op- opposition to them, uh, that theoretically, if there's a new legislature, they could be revoked. Is that is that something that is a doable option for for people who are opposing this or um, once these laws get kind of enshrined, they're they're hard to undo? No, I think that we could see a future majority repeal these laws. Um, and indeed, something like the one gun a month rule that is being proposed in Virginia. It was the law in Virginia for, uh, for over 20 years, um, and was repealed, uh, I think uh, a little less than 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, the gun laws are one of these things that are hot button political issues and that people feel very passionately about now on both sides. Uh, and shifting majorities could mean uh, that this legislation that's adopted today gets repealed tomorrow. Now, obviously, we, as of this podcast, we don't know if things are passing or not in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Are you aware of other states that this kind of issue is these kinds of proposals are being either introduced or even mulled over? Well, yeah, I mean, I think these kinds of proposals reflect the growing strength of the gun reform movement. Um, you know, 10 years ago, there wasn't much of a gun reform movement, uh, and there wasn't a lot of people who were really um, putting a lot of pressure on, say, elected officials to enact uh, gun reform. But things have really changed, I think, as a result of Newtown and the, the, the steady stream of mass shootings. We now see, for instance, all of the major Democratic presidential contenders staking out very strong positions on gun reform. Uh, that's a real sign of how this issue has really become one of the key issues in the Democratic Party, is really energizing a lot of people. Uh, and so we are seeing a lot more uh, movement in this direction uh, and uh, a lot more um, uh, sort of power uh, and influence by a gun safety reform advocates. If you were to look at the national scene, just going away from Virginia for a moment, what do you think are some things in what you've just described about the gun reform movement that might actually catch on at a federal level, provided there's a, a Democratic president, I'm sure. But is there are there certain things that are really taking shape that that you see within the next five years are going to be standard in this country? Well, I will say very hard to predict what's going to happen in the next five years. I think uh, many of us have learned over the last couple of years that predicting the future of American politics is hazardous <laughs> business. Uh, so so I don't know if I want to make any strong predictions, but if I were to say, if you were to ask me sort of what are the likely kinds of reforms we, are, we could see uh, in the next five years, um, uh, I think you're right that it requires a change in the White House to get serious gun reform. Um, President Trump has talked about um, uh, about uh, pushing forward the comprehensive gun reform, the best gun reform America's ever seen, <laughs> uh, but doesn't really seem to follow through on that and hasn't followed through on that. Um, uh, we are seeing, I think there's one area of bipartisan agreement where we're seeing much more bipartisan support for red flag laws mm-hmm. uh, than we are for any other kind of gun reform. And, and for instance, Lindsey Graham has 
uh, a proposed the Senate bill that would provide um, um, federal financing for states to set up red flag laws. Um, so I, I think we might see some movement in the area of red flag laws if we were to see a, a Democratic president and a Democratic majority in the Senate. We might see universal background checks adopted. I think other reforms that are at the top of the list of uh, the gun reform movement, such as bans on military-style assault rifles, bans on high-capacity magazines, or, or even in some cases, uh, as Beto O'Rourke was talking about when he was a presidential candidate, mandatory confiscation of certain kinds of weapons. I think those reforms are highly unlikely uh, to be adopted uh, in the next five years, uh, really, um, at the federal level at all. Yeah, I mean, it's one misconception I think that we hear a lot about is, well, this all happened in Australia. Why can't it happen here in the United States? What? Why can't it happen in the United States? In in your opinion? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons why it can't happen here. I also would be skeptical that what people think happened in Australia actually happened. <laughs> um, uh, so. Um, so one, so what Australia did was after a big mass shooting some years ago, uh, they had a big mandatory gun buyback program where they bought back certain military style weapons and certain high capacity magazines, uh, firearms with high capacity magazines. And they confiscated about 800,000 of the country's 3 million firearms. Well, since that time, um, those 800,000 weapons have been replaced and Australia now has the same number of firearms that it had back before the gun buyback, and they're slightly different firearms, a little less dangerous, but any firearm, as you well know, is very, very dangerous. Um, and so Australia has 3 million guns again, and uh, so it's hard for me to imagine that the, the buyback had a major effect on gun violence in Australia. So number one, I don't buy much about what's often referred to as the Australian miracle. Number two, we couldn't do that in the United States anyway. We have a Second Amendment that says you have a right to keep and bear arms. If those firearms are protected by the Second Amendment, then you can't confiscate them. And the government doesn't have the authority to go about and collect them because you have a right to have them. Supreme Court hasn't made exactly clear which weapons are covered by the Second Amendment, but we know that ordinary handguns are protected by the Second Amendment. And so any effort to confiscate, for instance, ordinary handguns would be unconstitutional. I would expect that the Supreme Court, with its new Trump majority, might be likely to say that military style rifles are protected, too, and they can't be confiscated. And again, I don't want to, you know, make you look into a crystal ball too much, but but I'm sure you are studying the Supreme Court, at least to an extent. The Virginia law, if it ends up there, any ideas as to how it might go? I think Virginia is on very safe, solid constitutional footing. I think the court is uh, has become a little bit more conservative in recent years and is more likely to read the Second Amendment broadly than the courts of the past. Um, however, I think Virginia's proposals, at least the ones that are moving forward, just aren't that radical and aren't that uh, outrageous. Universal background checks, I just think it's highly unlikely that the Supreme Court would ever say it's wrong for states to require people to go through a background check before they get a fire, before someone buys a firearm. Um, I think that uh, a red flag law, well, red flag laws raise some issues with regards to making sure that the person who, the gun owner has is afforded due process of law. And these laws have generally been upheld by the courts so far. 
Uh, and I don't think that the Supreme Court would uh, step in and say that these laws are unconstitutional. Um, uh, and then the one gun a month rule, while it does impose some burden on gun owners, um, I think most people would, including the justices, might likely say that being able to buy 12 guns a year is really not a substantial restriction on the right to keep and bear arms. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, the last question I wanted to ask you is, since you were such a scholar in this area, is there a solution or a development in gun reform that really has never been talked about or is talked about very little that might take shape? Is there anything that, that people seem to be missing in this debate um, in terms of whether it's confiscation, not anything like that, but just something that is a, a dynamic that we just aren't hearing about? I think uh, it's absolutely clear that the most effective policy we've developed to reduce gun violence is uh, a policy that no one's talking about, which is a policy known as Operation Ceasefire. And this was designed by some social scientists um, that said, hey, you know what, what if we didn't try to regulate guns? but try to target the people who are most likely to use them for criminal activities. It turns out that in America's cities, um, most of the gun violence is committed by a very, very small fraction of people. And law enforcement generally knows who those people are, the gangbangers, the criminals, the, uh, the, the routine ordinary people who are out there uh, constantly committing crimes. And these Operation Ceasefire programs, although they're very resource intensive, uh, they bring together community leaders, religious leaders, law enforcement, all come together, former gang members, to intervene with gang members, to provide them with opportunities to show that they don't have to result, they don't have to turn to, gang, to gun violence. Um, they also, you know, threaten them by saying, hey, look, we're going to be looking at you if there's gun violence and we're going to uh, try to figure out if you're responsible. So if there's gun violence in your community, you better not be uh, responsible for it. These programs have been tried in a couple of major cities and have had remarkable results bringing down gun violence in those cities. However, they're very resource intensive in a time of budget cuts and whatnot. Uh, cities and states just haven't been willing to put the money behind these kinds of um, uh, intervention efforts. Um, but the social scientific evidence is very promising in their favor. Hmm. I have not ever heard of that. That's, and I think that's, that's obviously a problem because you're right. No one's talking about it. And it seems like a, it almost seems like a community policing kind of model in a way, which, um, I have heard of, but, you know, is another thing that's very resource intensive and doesn't, um, often get the acclaim that it should. I think that's right. And, and that's what Operation Ceasefire seeks to do. It's not an effort to regulate guns. It's an effort to try to target those people who are responsible for gun violence and provide them with um, opportunities so that, and warnings that, uh, that they don't want to be involved in gun violence anymore. Um, and they've been shown to work. And um, I know that there is some federal money that's been proposed uh, to increase these programs. But it's an area where we could definitely do much to bring down American gun violence. Uh, but we just have to have uh, the will and the money and the resources to really do it. Well, Adam Winkler is the definitive Second Amendment constitutional scholar, and you should check out his book, Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, as this debate in Virginia and elsewhere heats up. 
Thank you for joining me today in the Nexus. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Phil Hochevar is a Virginia resident who owns a small firearm instruction company, served for five years as an infantryman in the United States Marine Corps, and now serves as a government contractor, in addition to being a psychological operations specialist in the U.S. Army Reserves. One of his passions is firearms and is opposed to the pending legislation in Virginia. Phil Hochevar, welcome to the Nexus. Hey, Art. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You are a gun owner and enthusiast in the Commonwealth of Virginia. What do you make of this array of legislation? Well, to be honest, I mean, uh, I, I see a lot of uh, just kind of misunderstanding with what a lot of the laws that we already have on the books actually are. Um, and then some, to some extent, uh, a little bit of intellectual dishonesty as to what is being pushed forward by legislatures. <coughs> What in, what in particular are you talking about? Uh, so uh, just kind of going into, you kind of covered down on some of the laws, like the red flag laws that are kind of, uh, that are being put forward. Um, the thing with a lot of these laws is it's, it seems to be pretty self-explanatory until you actually go into the actual verbiage of the laws. Again, um, substantial risk. Where's the real left and right lateral limit on, on that? Um, is it something where, you know, anyone can report it? You know, some, maybe you have a neighbor, someone, someone just doesn't like you can actually, you know, report you, you might, and then again, you'd have your, you know, second amendment rights infringed. I, you know, I don't really see that, that occurring with, you know, the first or any other, any other amendments. Uh, in addition, uh, they usually, you always hear the assault weapons ban or, um, what usually comes to mind for, you know, lay people is AR-15s, AK-47s, you know, weapons of war. But then when you actually go down into, uh, into what, the, what the law really defines, or at least Virginia, what this uh, bill is defining it as, you kind of covered it. Um, anything with 10, 10 rounds or more, or even just magazines on their own. Um, many who are opposed to, or you know, maybe opposed or not feel the need for AR-15s, AK-47, things like that, um, would... They may not believe those are necessary, but then when you start talking about pistols and other weapon systems, it sort of snowballs into something they weren't initially envisioning. Yeah. No, I, I get that. Um, well, let's, let's break down some of the stuff that you've, you've talked about. Um, of course. I mean, shouldn't red flag laws in some sense be in place? I mean, if somebody is visibly disturbed and possibly a threat, why should they have firearms? Absolutely. I, I, I can't agree with you more. It's, um, so again, if we look at, I believe it was the Parkland shooter, um, teachers, students, many, many people brought this to the attention and it was ultimately overlooked. Uh, not saying that things like this shouldn't, shouldn't be considered. Uh, many out there who just, you know, shall not be infringed and that's the end of the conversation. Um, there should just be a more... Uh, I would I'd say just a little bit more effort into how we're actually defining these laws. Um, like I said, it's a little bit, it's to me, it seems kind of intellectually dishonest. Um, you can have a red flag laws, certainly. Um, but not as they're, it's, it seems like that, like I said, left and right lateral limit is fairly wide on this. Right. So it seems like you're, you're hinting at if 
your neighbor knows you own a gun and you looked at them the wrong way or you you had a loud party or something like that or maybe you even yelled at somebody in your household um they could theoretically call the cops and say you're a threat of course again that, that's not saying that everyone does that um but again it's you know we when it comes to law when it comes to law and you know how this actually works it's not so much it's not it's it's very important that you're very very specific with what it says because again if it it has too wide of a berth um like you just kind of said it could it could be it could be abused again uh, i believe it was a couple of years ago there was a practice where a lot of gamers were calling the cops and calling you know saying there was uh some kid they're playing against was uh, you know i was holding someone hostage and uh, they called it swatting. And uh, police and law enforcement would actually kick in the door of these houses that genuinely concerned for the well-being of the people in that, that home. And ultimately, it was just some kids having fun or, yeah. you know, kind of being harmful. So you, can't, you really can't over, you know, overlook, you know, another human being's potential to, to do something like that. So, again, I just think it should be a little bit more precise with how we would define a law like that. Now let's talk about background checks. Um, of in general, what do you think about them? Do you support them? Um, and what is either right or wrong about the proposed legislation? Um, well, again, kind of going into the, the whole gun control, um, one of the, it's always proposed universal background checks, the firearms purchases. And that's usually the first, that first item that, they're always, that people always push when it comes, you know, pro-gun advocates kind of push. Um, the implication is that there isn't background investigations of any kind. We don't have background checks. Um, I worked for a little, uh, little bit as a contractor for uh, FBI Nix, uh, FBI Nix doing background investigations, firearm purchases. Again, not representing them, not saying anything. I'm not a spokesperson or any way related, but just having seen, I guess, how the sausage is made, you know, beginning to end, you, fill, you go into the, you go in the local shop, you fill out your 4473. It gets submitted. Um, what happens there? Um, having kind of seen that, there is already these things in place. Um, even those who aren't, even those states who don't uh, go to NICS for that, Virginia is one of them, Pennsylvania, California, they still, they still have to maintain these background investigations. And there are these things that are federal, federally prohibited. Uh, felonies, um, domestic violence, things like that. Mm-hmm. So those uh there there are those prohibitors well, already on the books. Let me pause for a second. I don't if it, all our listeners may not know what NICS is. Can you of course. what is that? Uh, the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. Um, it was founded after uh, in uh, 1994, following the Brady Act. Um, ultimately, the idea is that it's this all-encompassing background investigation um, for firearms purchases. So that, um, let's say you have a criminal who uh, committed rape or arson or whatever have you, a felony offense in one state, couldn't just, you know, pick up shop, move in a couple other states over and, you know, purchase a firearm there. Um, again, it takes criminal records and tries to communicate uh, between states and different law enforcement entities. So that way, it's a lot of these loopholes that they're saying are there actually mitigated by systems like NICS. So it sounds like what Virginia is proposing is redundant. Is that what you're getting at? 
Yes. Uh, again, I, I, it, for anyone who says, um, you know, we need gun control. We actually already have gun control. Next, the background investigation. That's already that's already a form. Okay, so we've talked about the background checks. We've talked about the red flag laws, but obviously there is the the bigger question, which is registering firearms with the state of Virginia. What do you think about that, and why? Is that even a necessity in in gun control advocates' mind? So again, just trying to, I would like to give them the benefit of a doubt. Again, I don't believe any of these advocates are you know bad people uh, in their own right. Um, my question with registration is, you know, what what is this meant to deter? What's where's the why behind it? Uh, again, the if we're we're just following a little bit of reason, you know, the people that will be following this law, abiding by the law. Those are the ones who will be registering the firearms. Those who are not are, you know, breaking the law. So you could probably see the kind of a correlation that, you know, the people who are not going to be registering the registering are probably the ones you're going to have to out watch out for breaking the law. I'm just kind of curious what registration would registering registering firearms. What end would that serve? Uh, and if no other reason than just to register. An assumption of many is that it's just one step towards confiscation. I've heard, is that what is the word on the street in a lot of ways? Is that you know you're you're plugged into that community uh, pretty well? I mean, is, is is that a genuine fear among gun owners and enthusiasts? So it, it would kind of depend on who you talk to. Uh, so the consensus for a lot is for a lot of people is. That is the intent. The intent would be confiscation. Many are doubtful that, that would actually occur based on, you know, the large, you know, influx of, you know, uh, people who are very dissatisfied with this, these intended bills, this intended uh, course of action with uh, gun control. So hmm. a, lot, a lot of people are somewhat skeptical, but they really don't want to, they really don't want to take that chance, if you know what I mean. I mean, what what do you feel personally as a gun owner about the idea that this could be a felony if you didn't register your guns? Well, uh, it'd be, uh, it would be pretty rough. Again, uh, working government still still serving. That's you know, felony is going to do is not going to do you any favors as far as your clearance or staying in the military. That's that's for sure. Um, but in, I mean, as it as someone who just moved down to Virginia for for work, uh, one of the reasons I decided to move to Virginia was because of because of the gun laws i mean i'm working the greater dc area uh i mean surrounding it you have you know dc you have maryland you know delaware pennsylvania i mean pennsylvania is still a drive but i chose virginia based on you know um freedom to to kind of do as i please on my own property whether it's you know shooting um shooting in the backyard you know got a got fi uh pretty decent amount of land so uh yeah, definitely would. Uh, I'd probably be considering moving again. Interesting, and um, obviously you're a, a newer resident, but you've gotten a sense of what Virginia is about, and and other states. Of um, even even if it's not Virginia, but for gun owners in general, what do firearms mean to their way of life? Um, well, I think you kind of hit it. It is a way. It is you know a way of life. It's something that kind of connects. Um, I mean, I can remember when my, uh, when my father first took me to the range, uh, 
you know, grandfather, grandfather kind of giving me his two cents on how to shoot. And he was, uh, you know, for, uh, former army, um, you know, drill sergeant went back in back during Korea. Um, but yeah, he always loved to give me his two cents on, you know, marksmanship. And it's, it's, it's something that really transcends the, you know, just the firearm itself. Cause it's, it is, you know, inherently ingrained in our culture. Right. Right. Um, one thing that I think our listeners might be misinformed about, and I think this has been a pivotal term in the debate, is, quote, assault weapon, right? So mm-hmm. in the Virginia legislation, that term is bandied about very liberally, um, and when you see the term, you would think, well, of course, I, who wants an assault weapon? Who wants to assault anyone, right? Um, but obviously, gun owners and enthusiasts think of it in different terms. Can you break down what that term means and why it's so controversial? Well, um, again, just kind of going back to the original, the original version of it, it was assault rifle. Um, that kind of began out of just a misunderstanding of what's um, an AR-15. Uh, AR-15 rifle is actually, the AR stands for, it's originally Armalite rifle. Uh, it's been subject to a lot of uh, misinformation and disinformation fairly equally. Um, coming from a, you know, su- working psyop with the Army, you see a lot of, um, you know, whether it's enemy propaganda or, you know, U.S. messaging and how we're actually, you know, uh, how we actually do things. And you kind of, once you kind of see it, you start to see, and I'm going to go back to saying intellectual dishonesty, um, that kind of, that kind of goes hand in hand with buzzwords such as, you know, assault weapon. Um, as I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, when you actually, it's a kind of caveat off that. The reason I also, I don't like how many on the right even will, uh, or pro gun advocates will say, um, they'll generalize, um, you know, use, use buzzwords as well. I prefer to, um, actually know exactly what, what, what it's being referenced. So, um, I actually looked into the bill, um, then I actually went into it and, uh, under def as, as defined assault weapon or assault as I was assault firearm, you have the standard definition of what you would describe an AR platform or other carbine military style carbine rifle. But then under the, you have, you know, some automatic shotguns, think belt fed weapons, silencers, things that they're very upfront about, but then kind of tucked away towards the back of the definitions is a semi-automatic fire pistol that expels a single or multiple projectiles by action of an explosion or combustible material with a fixed magazine capacity in excess of 10 rounds. So what does that mean? It's not, it doesn't really mean an AR or an AK, you know, a machine, like any sort of machine gun, you know, it's under that definition that would include, you know, um, standard standard handguns so and that's that's not what is being put forward when these bills are when these bills are being advocated or pushed um they they, again they always push the ars the ak's things like that but then they took something like that away so So are you saying that a nine millimeter handgun would be caught up in this legislation absolutely um by that definition um semi-automatic fire pistol um 10 round um in excess of 10 rounds. Um, if you're, if you actually, you know, had any experience with a lot of pistols, majority of pistols, um, with the exception of a few single stack magazines and subcompacts, you know, really, you know, the small concealable ones, 
um, pretty much all those have a magazine capacity in excess of that. So they would, again, that would be um, subject to registration, all that other stuff. Uh, again, that, that bill didn't, that, I think, I believe that part was um, pulled back, but just uh, that was actually something that was put forward. So and I don't believe a lot of people are aware of that. And it could come back. I mean, of course, just because Absolutely. something was pulled back um, this month could return. The legislature is a several month term and that, that could come back next month. Of course, but of course. Let's look at it from the other side. Um, obviously, folks will say that mass shootings prompted this flurry of legislation. Mm-hmm. And so I ask you, can gun control stop this or even help a little, which would be clearly something. So again, kind of going back to what is gun control, um, many believe that or pro gun advocate or pro gun control advocates believe it doesn't exist. Um, to which I just if just talking to them on a you know person by person basis, just kind of inform them and say, hey, we actually have a lot of these measures in place that you're asking for. Um, you know, such as the background checks, um, you know, the federal prohibitors. Um, a lot of these things are actually on the books. Um, and to that end, usually in the past when, you know, you explain something to like that, it's, it's usually a lot more receptive. Um, uh, sorry, I got a little bit sidetracked as far as the, uh, uh, apologize. Gun control. Yep. Thank you. As far as, uh, gun control, uh, there has been instances where, you know, um, gun control would have, or gun control laws that we still have on the books could have actually helped. I believe the uh, there was that uh, church shooter. Um, he was uh, dishonorably discharged from the Air Force. I again don't don't get me wrong or don't quote me on that. I'm not 100 percent on the story, but if memory serves, he was dishonorably discharged. Shouldn't been able to purchase a firearm, but uh, due to records and you know um, not being pushed forward, it kind of fell through the cracks. So again, yes, we should absolutely. Um, yeah, what we have is will work. Um, I just believe we should focus on the laws we actually have and ensure that they are carried out uh, as efficiently as possible before trying to add add other things. So, I mean, you're obviously not, and I'm going to make a darkly comic joke, you're not pro-mass <laughs> shootings by any means, but um, you you differ on the approach to stopping them. Uh, aside from enforcing what's on the books though i mean what is there something deeper that this country or the state can do to prevent this kind of horror that's happening i believe to an extent we are kind of doing it um we are seeing an influx in this style of this style of uh crime uh you know what we've kind of seen is you know anymore media won't publish names won't kind of glorify or honor, you know, those who are carrying it out. Because again, um, kind of going back to the reason we're seeing this influx, I mean, I believe we're having a lot of, a lot of that is kind of a result of how connected we are. Um, social media, I mean, one person, one act can, you know, uh, can really have, can really have an effect. Um, something, something bad happens and everyone's seeing it. Um, so as far as that, um, really take kind of taking into account, um, you know, our impact on just trying to deter, deter these, um, deter these acts by like not glorifying them, uh, mm-hmm. not really mentioning it, not really mentioning them. Um, 
um, not not to say that we're we're just going to ignore them happening. Uh, I believe that would be one step. Uh, again, mental illness would probably be another one. Uh, pretty much every one of these, large majority, there's some underlying mental mental faculty issue. Again, that's something that's kind of that's a that's a federal prohibitor under uh, under NICS. Um, you know, uh, mental uh, mental mental uh, problems or issues. Mm-hmm. Again, that's just difficult to diagnose, and for it's even more difficult for to actually get the documentation that, you know, that would enable that person to be denied. As far as you know, and I mean, you talked about your father, grandfather, who uh, oriented you towards guns at a young age. As far as you know, in their generations, were there as many firearms as there are today? Was it similar, different? What have they, they I, I, would de- I would definitely say it was different. Um, there was much more of a familiarity. Again, just speaking from stories, um, you know, my father, my uncle, they used to tell me stories about how, uh, you know, they'd go home, they'd go from school, walk from school, they'd pull their shotgun out of their locker and then go rabbit hunting, you know, go small game hunting on their way back, back home from school. Um, something that just would be just unthinkable, you know, today mm-hmm. or even a few or even the past couple decades. Um, but that. So yeah, there is a difference. And if you look at the numbers, though, we're I think it's like it's grown exponentially um, every year. Um, firearms purchases on Black Friday goes up, goes you know well exceeds the previous year. It seems to happen every single year. Um, but yeah, I would just under, I would just I believe it's the view and the understanding and just uh, I would just kind of view view firearms. Uh, people were very seem to be very much more comfortable with them back then. There was an understanding. Um, now, like I said, there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of disinformation on what actually is. And again, trying to add, that's kind of what a, one of the missions of uh, my small, you know, my small business is, you know, whether it's your local law enforcement, military, or just some, someone who just wants to, you know, learn more about it, be safe around firearms, be more comfortable around firearms. Um, is it possible then, you've touched upon something, is it possible then that there's too many firearm sales and too many people who are not properly trained have access to them? As far as access, that, that's kind of difficult to say. Um, I'm definitely an advocate for training. Um, all too often there's, you know, you see, and I, we, we kind of make fun of it, but uh, Someone spending a thousand dollars on this, you know, slick new pistol or rifle or you know, sight or optic or whatever have you, and they are neither safe nor good at you know, marksmanship or self defense. It's the kind of the joke is like, man, you don't need a thousand dollar pistol. You need like a four hundred dollar pistol and six hundred dollars worth of training. <laughs> um, the uh, and again, just just training just the average everyday citizen on um you know just firearm safety even if they're not really intent on you know owning or you know firing or anything else they can still have an understanding and a respect for what it is um and if it is encountered they would know how to to deal with it not so much hey just throw your hands up and scream it's like okay we're gonna make sure it's safe cleared out no one's gonna no like no kid or you know no one who shouldn't be getting hands on it will get hands on it 
Understood. Understood. Um, well, let's wind up here then. And uh, we there's a lot to be looking towards with the Virginia legislature this term. Uh, some of this may get passed. Some of this may not. Maybe none of it. Maybe all of it. It's it's a um, an ongoing thing. And I think most importantly, Virginia can be a model for the rest of the country, whether it's good or bad. If you're a gun control person, you're looking at this very closely, and this is something you've been waiting for for years. And obviously, if you are not, this is something that is of great concern. And so, Phil Hochevart, thank you for joining me in the Nexus. Thanks, Art. Thanks for having me. And we will be right back. Now that we've heard from the nation's foremost Second Amendment constitutional scholar and a Virginia gun owner and resident, what do I think of all this? I'm a gun owner and enthusiast myself. I own an AR-15 rifle, several handguns, and a shotgun. I enjoy shooting at the range and have a concealed carry permit in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I think common sense legislation is appropriate. And if things like background checks pass, the world won't end. Red flag laws are fine too, though they have the possibility for being abused by nosy or spiteful neighbors. I do believe that red flag laws would have stopped some mass shootings in the past, though. That said, I am heartened to hear Professor Winkler say he doesn't believe there will be a confiscation of weapons in this country or the ban of certain firearms. While I detest mass shootings and was sick to my stomach after Newtown, I never once thought these weapons should be banned. Why? Because it's patently obvious that there is a sickness in this country. There are numerous under-the-surface issues that are causing people to reach for weapons to cause damage. An economy that has marginalized too many of us. Not enough jobs that pay a living wage. Drug abuse as a result of malaise a media that overplays these shootings, causing them to seem glorious and worthy of becoming a copycat. If I didn't so believe that there was a virus at the core of the United States that needs treating, I might be in favor of banning and confiscating certain weapons. The Second Amendment isn't absolute. You can't own surface-to-air missiles or fully automatic military weapons. There are limits, and reasonable limits are fine. Taking a rifle or shotgun away from me isn't. There will be a lot of protests in Virginia as these bills likely become laws. This may be enough to ensure Republican is in the statehouse for several terms to come. Or not. As Adam Winkler said, the gun reform culture is changing. It's time to do what we can to put people at ease about mass shootings without throwing out the baby with the bathwater. America will never be a gun-free nation, nor should it be. We need to treat the cancer that has been decimating this country for the past 40 years. Restoring a sense of purpose, community, and belonging. We are too isolated, and this makes some of us want to act out. Let's be better friends, neighbors, and colleagues. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. Production assistance by Ian Heald, and special thanks to Greg Schaefer on this episode. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time, and be well. 